I'm Colleen, and this podcast is an inside look at recovery, which I define as a lifelong journey to get out of your own way and become your own best friend. Join me for mindset upgrades that move you from worry and regret to resilience and confidence. I'll share easy strategies for how to feel better without having to make major changes. Because it's not what you do, it's who you are. Self-care is the path to recovery because our needs are not negotiable. I'm so excited for today's episode. It is my first guest interview, and I thought it fitting to bring and introduce you to my coach, Heather Ross. She hosts the podcast, Living With Your Child's Addiction, and works as a parent support coach for people who are struggling to make sense and support their children as they are dealing with addiction issues and all the things that go with that. And even though I don't have a child who is struggling with addiction, I somehow found Heather and I'm a regular listener of her podcast and ultimately I hired her to be my coach. She's the one who showed me how to use thought models as a tool And thought models are where you learn how to separate the circumstance of what's going on in the world, the neutral circumstance, from the story you're telling yourself about it and all the assumptions and everything that you're making it mean so that you can process your emotions in a way that allows them to be useful, so that you can extract the message and resolve for them, so that you can, as I always say, learn how to manage your emotions so that they are not managing you. So you can show up in stressful circumstances as intelligent and confident and forward thinking and able to really solve your problems because you've solved for the primary problem, which is the way you feel about it. And once you get that out of the way, life just becomes so much easier to deal with. It just, thought models allow you to see things so much more clearly and operate from a level of emotional intelligence that I was never able to access without the tool. So today, Heather is gonna share her story. She lost her 21-year-old daughter about a year ago to an accidental fentanyl overdose. She's gonna talk about the grief process and how she uses self-care and specifically what tools she relies on the most, how she uses self-care to process her grief. Specifically, she's gonna share with us the strategy that she came into, thankfully before her daughter passed away, known as CRAFT, which stands for uh, Community Reinforcement and Family Training. And it's an evidence-based scientific approach to dealing with addiction and dealing with addicted people. Heather credits this approach for the fact that she and her daughter were able to have a beautiful, loving relationship in the last few years of her life and allowed her to love her daughter unconditionally, independent of where she was at in the recovery process. And she credits this tool with the reason why she has no regrets. And even though this is the hardest thing she's ever had to go through and hopefully will ever have to go through, she's at peace with who her daughter was and how she showed up and is now able to use her own experiences and hard-earned wisdom to support and guide other families going through the same thing. 
This interview is applicable on so many levels, whether you're a parent struggling with your own child or whether you are more like I was and you're just attracted to Heather's story because of the parallels with your own recovery. Or if you're a person processing grief or struggling with self-care, it applies to all of us. So enjoy. So thank you, Heather, so much for being with us today. I'm so honored that you are my first podcast interview, and I'm so excited to share with everybody um, you as a person and your story and also what you've meant to me in my life and in my recovery. You have given me so much hope and support and guidance and I really appreciate that. So I, I'm welcoming you to the show and I appreciate you being here. Um, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. And thank you so much. That was so kind. Hopefully I can live up to all those nice things you said about me. <laughs> um, so I'm a parent support coach and I got into that work because I have a daughter that struggled with addiction from an early age. I think um, she said she started experimenting around 12 years old. And then um, I found out about it around the time she was about 15, you know, when the high school started calling me all the time. And I started dreading seeing their phone number come up on my phone. And we really went through some really tough years because it wasn't just substance use. It started with an eating disorder and depression and anxiety and cutting and being suicidal. There was just so many things happening at once that I felt like I was playing that game whack-a-mole, you know, like every time you hit one mole, two more pop up. And I felt completely ineffective as a parent because I didn't know how to help her. It was the first thing that ever came up for me as a mom that I couldn't help my daughter with. Mm -hmm. And the people that I was turning to for help, the ones, you know, that I would have considered experts at the time, a lot of the stuff that they were telling me to do was not only not working, but it was really pushing my daughter away from me and causing a lot of chaos in our family. So that went on for several years and her, you know, substance use just escalated and um, she ended up moving out when she was 18. And around that time, I also, I found coaching and I found um, a book that talks about community reinforcement and family training, which is an evidence-based approach. It's based on, that means it's based on science and it's been studied. Um, and I started to see that a lot of the things that I had been taught really weren't so based in science and really were more stigmatized beliefs and approaches. And what I loved so much about craft um, was that it gave me permission to just love my daughter as she was. Um, because before that, it was almost like I was getting this low level, like, unintentional message that she was the problem that was just being reinforced instead of learning to see her substance use as a symptom of the problem that she was experiencing. It was a solution for her. Mm -hmm. um, you know, nobody ever said like, 
why is she hurting so bad? Why is she doing this? What problem is this solving for her? It was more like she just has to stop and she won't stop until she's ready. And that's another thing that I love about craft is that it gives you ways to support your child, even when they're not ready, ways to motivate change. Can you explain what craft is? Yeah, it is. Um, again, it's an evidence-based approach that is, I guess I. it's easiest to explain the spirit of it which I would say is science and kindness. Well, what's the acronym first? It's community reinforcement and family training. And um, it is a way that you can stay in relationship with your child or any loved one. It can work for even a friend. You just have to be in contact with that person. Um, And it's a way of using positive communication with them. It gives methods for... Um, engaging them in treatment, offering that to them. It focuses on self-care and really gives you tools to support yourself and the person you love as they're struggling. So I started using those tools with my daughter and she started to change and so did I. But we were able to repair our relationship to really even better than it was before um, she started using substances. And I think that that's a really important part of my story because a lot of times people feel like things can't get better until the person stops using whatever they're using. Mm -hmm. And that's just not true. Like healing can happen even if somebody is continuing to use substances. My daughter and I are, I think, a really great example of that. And she eventually did end up going into treatment. She went a couple of times and she was doing really well in her recovery, getting to find herself as a sober young woman. She was 21 Um, when she really started getting traction in her recovery. And um, some things happened in the sober living house that she was living in that were pretty traumatic to her. And she ended up having a reoccurrence of use and getting fentanyl. And um, she ended up passing away from that. It was a fatal dose. And it was the one time that I really wasn't so worried about it anymore. You know, I had worried about it so much for so many years. And um, at that time, that's just something that really sticks out to me. I finally just wasn't that worried about it anymore. And um, I think another important thing to mention about that is our last conversation where she called me to tell me that she had used again and that she got kicked out of the sober living home. We had a really loving conversation. Like I told her that I still, you know, that I loved her, that I was still proud of her, that this one reoccurrence of use did not diminish all of the hard work that she had done over the last 18 months, that um, she should still be proud of herself. And we, we had a plan. Unfortunately, she didn't follow the plan. But when we hung up, I want to add this too. I think it's another important part. I got very, I started getting angry, right? Like I was so afraid of losing her, 
not that I was afraid she was going to die because we had also talked about how she had used and I felt like it was a harm reduction and we were, you know, had been thinking about making sure she didn't overdose. And um, we weren't taking fentanyl into account in any of this. And um, when we, when we hung up, I started getting angry and thinking all of these thoughts about what had happened, but I sat down and wrote about it and got really intentional with how I thought about it. And because of that, instead of texting her and berating her or, you know, putting her down, anything like that, I got really intentional and just sent her a text and told her how much I loved her. And because of the work I've done on myself, I don't have to live with what that would have felt like had that been my last interaction with her. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the most important reasons why it's important for parents or any loved one to work on themselves because we get to be proud of how we show up. You never know what's going to happen. And um, we get to know that we did everything we could to support the person that we loved. So what I'm hearing there is what you would have taught me using kind of what we refer to as the thought models, that your anger, you did not mistake your anger to be a reflection of her drug use. It was what you make it mean and what you assume, yeah, what you make it mean. And so you were able to process your anger and then address the situation in which in that case, you, because she'd already used, there was nothing that could be done you chose to respond with love. So you didn't react in anger. You responded with love after you dealt with your anger. And that is, it sounds like a huge gift because that was the last time you interacted with her. Is that right? Yeah. And when I did my models, I realized that those feelings were mine to deal with right? That those were about my thoughts about what she was doing. And those thoughts were fear-based. That wasn't how I really felt. So instead of showing up from a place of fear, I was able to intentionally show up from a place of unconditional love and be supportive and also process my anger again, wasn't about her. It was just that we were even in this situation. You mentioned that you were given a lot of bad advice by experts and the stigmatized approach. I can only imagine that the conventional wisdom on addiction would be to confront your child and to put a zero tolerance and, you know, don't enable them. Can you give me a specific example of how looking back, if you would handled things differently when she was 12 or 13, how that might've affected the trajectory of her addiction? Well, we'll never really know. So um, I think one thing to be really careful with is all the what if scenarios, but um, I have often wondered if I had showed up with that unconditional love and questioning 
why is she doing this? What is she going through? And having more of a curious approach than a judgmental approach. Yeah. And creating a space where we could be open and honest with each other instead of a space of punishment for what she was going through. You know, I had a, I had that zero tolerance policy where sobriety was my only goal for her. It was anything less than that was unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And so I was, but that also didn't feel right to me, but that was the message that I was being given. And so there was a lot of confusion. So I was always going back and forth on one hand, trying to show up with understanding, but I was completely confused because nobody even really helped me understand substance use disorder. And then, so I would show up trying to be loving, but inside full of resistance. And then I would get really frustrated because it wasn't working. I'm, you know, air quoting that it wasn't working. And then I would show up with anger. So she never knew what she was going to get from me. Yeah. And when she was already struggling, I'm putting all this pressure on her to be okay so that I can be okay. Yeah. And as an adult, that's my responsibility to focus on myself and be able to hold space for her so that she doesn't have to carry the burden of my experience as well. When you say that it didn't feel right to you to have a zero tolerance policy and all that goes with that, obviously, if you felt that way, there's a thought or a wisdom or something that's coming from inside. Can you extrapolate what that is now that you know is an evidence-based or a a more valid approach to dealing with it? Like, what is it that was under there that was making you feel like this zero tolerance policy isn't the right answer? Well, I felt like who my, you know, knowing who my daughter had been before that something must have happened that um, nobody wants to go through this. Like she was suffering. She was really struggling. She no longer even really wanted to live. Like something is going on there. I want to know what that is, what, what she really needs. And, but I also was shutting down my intuition and not listening to that inner voice because having a child struggling with substance use can really kind of um, impact your confidence. (laughs) So I didn't, you know, I had lost a lot of confidence in myself because I couldn't help her, but eventually I just was done with all of it. It just started, I started seeing like nothing that I'm doing is helping and I'm just creating more chaos. So I decided to stop doing everything that we were doing, which felt completely wrong. And, um, because it felt like I was giving up, but I just, everybody needed a break. And 
giving myself and my, the rest of the family kind of that space where we weren't frantically doing whatever we possibly could. Like, I feel like that opened up the space for me to find coaching and craft and really get answers, but I had to stop listening to all those voices that had gotten so much louder than mine. Yeah. So that was a process. So your last interaction with her is, and I've heard you talk about it on your podcast, is actually one that you feel proud of and that you feel blessed that you handled it right. And that the last thing she knew from you was love. Yeah, absolutely. So I imagine that that, um, how does that affect the grieving process? You know, I mean, obviously the alternative would have been you're a loser. I'm done with you. I'm not putting up with this anymore. You're cut off. Like, talk to me a little bit about the grieving process and how that's, how that manifests as a gift in your life to know that you sent love. Well, I can't even imagine as, you know, as hard as it is knowing that I showed up for her the best way that I possibly could. I can't even imagine how it would be torture if those were, if that was our last interaction had been um, something that I wasn't proud of. And, um, you know, I know I've watched her dad who did not have, a, you know, spent many years not having a close relationship with her. They had really just started talking again before she died. I watch what he goes through. And so um, I can, and I feel his pain. So I can only imagine, um, you know, I always am able to at least go back to that. And when I get, go down the road of the what ifs, um, reminding myself that I just did the best I could with what I had, like how far back would I have to go with my what ifs to avoid this? Right. Have you ever seen that movie, the butterfly effect? Oh, it's been years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, remember how he kept trying, going back in time, trying to change things. And every time he changed something, something else went wrong. And I think about that movie a lot because I don't know what it would have happened with one change here or there. And And so I stop. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's a, what if is it's not real. There's only what is. So it sounds to me like self-care, self-care. Okay. Let me cut that. It sounds to me like what shifted in your relationship with your daughter is that you stopped focusing on her if that's what I heard and started more looking at what was going on with you, which of course we call that self-care. So it sounds like self-care changed the way you related to your daughter when she was alive. Um, How is self-care then shown up for you in your grief? Well, I would think that that self-care, part of that was also like learning to understand myself, learning to have a relationship with myself, loving myself, all of those, you know, I was totally neglecting myself. So I had that foundation 
to lean into in my grief. And I realized early on that all of the things, all the tools that I needed to help me through her addiction also were the same tools that were going to help me through grief. So even just in the, in the very early days, focusing on the basics, which it's so easy to forget, like making sure that I slept and that I drank water and that when I could, I got up and moved around. Like I didn't feel like working out or anything, but I would like walk to my mom's or move my body somehow. Um, and just kind of like going back to the things that I did before when she was in active addiction and things were hard, all of those skills serve me well in grief. And I was used to spending time, like knowing if I was really struggling, searching for, I'm into energy healing and sound baths and meditation. And, you know, the breath work I recently discovered too, like reaching out for extra help when I need it, going to counseling, all those things I consider to be part of my self-care routine. And really I'm like, whatever I need <laughs> to get through this, yeah. because, um, you know, we only have one life and I want to be able to, even though I'm experiencing this intense grief, I can also experience joy if I'm open to it and taking care of myself. Yeah. I can't imagine, um, how, how it feels to try to allow joy to coexist with grief, because I don't imagine it's either or. Yeah. It was shocking to me at first, because I think even the day that I got the call that she had died, I, well, I was so in shock. Um, there, and I'm so grateful for that because as it's wore off over the last year, <laughs> I've wanted it back, the shock. but yeah, yeah. I mean, it was definitely saved me from the biggest part of the pain immediately, like giving my body time and my brain time to process this new reality. And it came in stages. It would have been too much to absorb all at once. But it was like I was observing myself those first few days or weeks and just noticing like, I always felt like if something happened to her, I would just immediately die. Like I'd spontaneously combust. Like we, <laughs> I could not exist on this earth without her. And I, I made a joke that night and I laughed and it was like, oh, wow. Like I just felt like that felt genuinely funny to me. And I didn't think that that would be possible with the level of grief that I'm experiencing. And I realized in that moment that I wanted to be intentional with allowing myself to still feel joy. Okay. I've heard you talk on your own podcast about finding somebody who grieves well. You know, I know from my recovery journey, of quitting alcohol, we're often told um, one of the good pieces of, of advice in recovery um, is to find somebody who has what you want and ask them how they got it and then do what they tell you until you know better. 
And you've talked a lot. And I often get really inspired when I hear you you say, have guests on your podcast where you're talking about them grieving well. What does it look like to grieve well? And, and what's the difference? I mean, you still have lost your child. So what's the difference? Part of the difference is like having something to get up for every day, choosing that I want that I'm going to continue to live every day because for a lot of this year, it's been a choice I've had to make every day and be really intentional with um, allowing the intense emotions but not getting lost in them. And when I feel like I'm getting lost in them, reaching out for extra help, being so much more vulnerable than I've ever been comfortable with before, asking for help, telling people to keep reaching out to me, keep checking on me. Um, Grieving well is allowing your life to still matter and have meaning. And for me, a a lot of it this year has been focusing on changing beliefs about stigma, educating, sharing my story, helping other families, trying to get this information to them sooner than I got it. So that, you know, hopefully their story can maybe have a different ending. Um, Also knowing that you can do everything right. You just never know how things are going to go. But if things do go bad, helping families have the same gift that I have of knowing that they did everything that they could and having that foundation of self-care. So Grieving well for me is just not getting lost in it, still living a life that matters. I've gone, I went on a bucket list trip this year. I've traveled with my, with my friends and my niece a couple of times, like allowing myself to have those experiences that feed my soul. That's what grieving well looks like to me. Okay. And so, you know, I've heard you say, or you said earlier, you said that you had been neglecting yourself and that the shift came for you and your relationship with your daughter when you started taking care of yourself. And I know for myself and many of my clients and people I talk to, the idea of self-care is a little um, confusing. You know, I used to think self-care was making myself pretty and meeting everybody's expectations and, you know, doing all the things like mowing my yard and doing my hair and putting on my makeup and keeping my car clean so that nobody thinks I'm a slob. To me, that's what I thought self-care was. So when you say you were neglecting yourself, in your daughter's addiction, I'm assuming that doesn't mean that your hair was unwashed and your yard was unmowed. What does it look like to neglect yourself? And then by contrast, what does it look like to care for yourself? Like, like for real. So neglecting myself looked like being just so focused on my daughter that I really wasn't thinking about myself. I was not sleeping well. 
I was not eating well. I was not exercising. I was working like 60 or more hours a week because work always made me feel successful. And um, when I went home, I didn't know how to deal with, with, with what was going on with my daughter. So I spent all that time at work. My blood pressure was really high. I had gained a lot of weight. I was getting sick all of the time. My hair was falling out. Like <laughs> it did not look pretty. And I just had this realization one day I was um, laying in bed and I had been really sick. I'd ended up with pneumonia because I would like take time off work and I would get a little better and I'd go back and I'd get sick again. And so finally I had had bronchitis and it turned into pneumonia and I'm laying there in bed and my dad had died at 47 years old from a heart attack because he didn't take care of himself. And I thought like, I'm just going to end up like my dad if I don't change something. And I had to take the microscope off of my daughter and start focusing on myself, which was a huge relief for her. It was empowering for me to learn to take care of myself instead of needing her to change so that I could be okay, learning how to be okay on my own and getting in touch with my body, myself, creating that mind body connection. And then also being an example of what I wanted her to do. So here I'm wanting her to change. I'm wanting her to take care of herself, but I'm not doing any of that. I don't even really know what I'm asking her to do or what it means until I start trying to figure it out myself. And part of my motivation was to be an example for her and to hoping that she would then start doing it as well. But then at some point along the way, it became about doing it for me. And I felt the same way you're talking about, like, like, you know, I just felt like an alien or something like, what is the self-care everybody talks about? Or like, what is self-love? I just don't understand. I mean, Googling it, you know, and what I really learned you know, part of it was also just even learning to feel emotions. Like I was, um, my daughter and I talked about how we were both addicted to being numb. We just had different ways of getting there and like learning to feel my feelings so that I even knew what I wanted or needed. I knew what everybody around me liked. I knew what they needed, but I had no idea what I liked or needed. So once I got in touch with my feelings, which was a process, it wasn't like I just decided to do it and it right. happened. I had to like read books about feeling feelings yeah. and like intellectualize my way into understanding what an emotion in my body felt like and what it meant to me and really just getting to know myself. That was the beginning of real self-care. Well, and I imagine that practicing self-care you had to get over some big hurdles of your own emotions because what does letting go feel like? I mean, the reason you're doing all those things is because you don't want to deal with the fear that you're going to lose her. So you're trying to control your fear by getting her to march and step with whatever you want her to do. So what, what did that shift feel like? I mean, was it liberating or was it like really painful or both? It was pretty liberate, liberating. Um, it was just really 
letting go of other people having the answers for me. And it was, so it was empowering to start to look inside of myself for the answers to start listening to my intuition to stop caring what anybody else thought about me, because that was a huge part of it too. Like going to counselors and her talking about how much she hated me in the early years and defending myself and thinking like how I look to all of these people, every doctor that we're taking her to, I just didn't care anymore. And that was liberating. I just, I think I was just pushed to the point where I just had to make this serious change or it was going to kill me. And so it felt that serious to me and it made it easier to just let it all go. And I love your answer about it being liberating. And we all give lip service to not caring what other people think of us. Why is it so hard? If if true self-care is liberating, which I find it is too, how, why does it take us so long to figure that out? I, I well, don't know. I think part of it is just like not really knowing what it is. Yeah. Like we were both saying the thinking that it's, um, you know, bubble baths and stuff. And you're like, well, I still like feel numb or not in control of my life, even though I've done all these things that are supposed to be self-care. I don't think that we talk about it enough, what it really is, what it really means. And um, nobody really wants to feel unless now I do, because I understand it. And I understand that how to manage my emotions. But before I, when I felt at the effect of them, the last thing I wanted to do was feel them. That was how I ended up finding numbness is the solution. I couldn't figure out how else to get rid of them. So I'm just going to be numb. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's a lack of understanding of, I mean, we're all taught to control our behaviors and to mask our emotions and just give out the ones that are socially appropriate. So yeah. And in this process too, something that I decided to do was like, I'm not going to pretend that I'm okay when I'm not. So I'm not going to care what people think. If people think that I'm grieving too long or that my grieving doesn't look like it should or whatever, I'm just going to feel what I need to feel because I'm not going to go back to shoving everything down and causing physical pain in my body because I'm not taking care of my emotions and just allowing them to process. Yeah. So what advice would you have for somebody that's dealing with acute grief in terms of, you know, I guess uninformed instinct of how to grieve versus really an intelligent approach that includes self-care, you know, what, what are some things that people might think that they're doing that's helping that doesn't, I mean, have you experienced anything like that where you thought something would help, but ultimately it turns out to not be self-care? Um, I think that the most important thing is 
allowing yourself space, a lot of space and allowing yourself the opportunity to like, to try something. And if it doesn't work to try something else, like just giving yourself more grace than you can possibly imagine ever giving yourself. It's really easy to get into a critical space when, especially with really acute, intense grief. Um, my brain was offering me a lot of junk to filter through when I was already exhausted. I didn't, you know, have the energy or the brain power to really manage. So I just had to give myself tons and tons of compassion and grace. I think that that's probably the most important thing that anybody can do and not allowing other people to keep their discomfort about your discomfort. So a lot of people experience this pressure to be okay because other people are uncomfortable with not being able to help you and seeing you in pain and allowing people to keep that for themselves. Don't take it on like you're already doing enough and allowing them that discomfort on their own, allow allow them to manage it instead of um, taking that on and doing like, if it feels good to talk about the person uh, that died, like talk about that person, whatever feels good to you is okay. Yeah. Helena. Yeah. It's okay to say her name, huh? Yeah. I talk about her all the time. And luckily I get to talk about her for my job, right? So (laughs) I feel like I have this great advantage because I can talk about her and our life together and use examples and it's just normal. It's just part of my everyday routine. But outside of that, I talk about her with my friends and with my family, you know, and we're coming up on one year since she died. We're going to, the days planned around her honoring her. I include her in everything. She's still a part of my life. One thing I've heard you talk about is that you've how you maintain a relationship with her now that she's passed. Can you just say a little bit more about that so that anybody listening might feel hope, you know, that how you're maintaining a relationship with her? Yeah, it's very similar to what it was like when I was learning how to have a relationship with her when she was struggling with addiction. It was awkward and uncomfortable in all new territory. And it's very similar. Like it's, it's awkward and uncomfortable in all new territory, but I know that that connection's still there. I feel it. There's um, when I'm open to it and, and I'm not in too heavy of a grief place, I always get these funny signs from her. You know, I went to um, speak at an overdose awareness event and I said, like, I want you to to show me that you're there with me. And the second that I got there to check into my hotel room, it was on the beach in Daytona and I went out on the balcony and I get this text that said, um, hi, Helena, how's your summer going? And I was like, I don't get texts for her on my phone. 
And it just happened to be some army recruiter, like from when she was in high school, she had to have given him my number uh-huh. four or five years ago. And now I'm getting the text. I mean, that's not a coincidence. <laughs> and just all these other little things that happen, like the room number we were in and everything. So I just feel like when you're open to it and you can see those things, those gifts, those messages, it, um, yeah, you can just have whatever relationship you believe in is available to you. Well, as a mother of four myself, um, I can, I know that our children are our greatest teachers and it sounds like Helena's really giving you a run for your money in terms of unconventional relationships, <laughs> she has. how to, how to participate in uh, a relationship when somebody's determined to do it their own way. So exactly. Well, that is a great explanation or description of her too. Yeah. Um, I so appreciate you being here with me today and sharing your story And what I'm really interested in is how somebody who's listening might work with you. Can you just like, you know, take two, three, five minutes and explain what it is you do, how it is you do it and how people can work with you and find you? Yeah. So I work with parents one-on-one coaching, helping them focus on themselves, take care of themselves, have connection with their child and ways that they can support them. I also have a free invitation to change group that meets a couple of times a month. And um, of course, there's my podcast. And I'm at Heather Ross Coaching on all social media. My podcast is called Living With Your Child's Addiction because you have to learn to live with it, like make friends with it and have it be part of your life. And my website's heatherrosscoaching.com. Heather Ross with two S's, heatherrosscoaching.com. Okay. And the podcast is Living With Your Child's Addiction. Well, thank you so much. Thanks Um, for having me. Yeah, we got it done. You were my first guest. (laughs) got me through it. So thanks. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please take the time to rate and review the show so that other people can find it. I really appreciate it. And check out the show notes for any resources I've mentioned, including links to follow me on Instagram and join my private Facebook group where I connect with my tribe every day. I love it in there and we have so much fun. And finally, If you're ready to redefine sobriety so that you can feel excited about quitting drinking, follow the link to my 10 Days to Spontaneous Sobriety course, where I will help you eliminate, eradicate, obliterate, cancel your desire to drink because looking and feeling your best is addictive too. I'll see you soon.